0: I'm Mike Brilla, host of the Inspired Teacher Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I'm talking with Laurel Schmidt. She is a lifelong educator, teacher, principal, district director art lover, and writer. And by the way, she was on episode 496 of Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, so you need to make sure that you you go back and listen, or uh, listen for the first time if you hadn't yet, because it's all about her critically acclaimed novel, How to Be Dead, a love story. You're going to love that. Uh, By the way, today we're focused on her book for school administrators called Gardening in the Minefield, a survival guide for school administrators. You are going to absolutely love this talk, and it is going to give you some great advice, Great advice if you are a school administrator, whether principal, assistant principal, whatever level you're at, this is the book for you. Thanks for listening. And by the way, before you go, it'd be so cool if you went to my website, stevamoletto.com slash review and left a review. Could you do that for me? That'd be so cool. Thanks so much. Enjoy the show.
1: It's the education podcast, your favorite
0: show, with lots of groovy guests, and they share what they know. So crank it up to ten and let your neighbors know that yeah, here's another show with Dr. Steemalletto, teaching, learning, leading K-12, teaching, learning, leading K-12, teaching, learning, leading K-12, ah ah, with Dr. Steemalletto. Laurel Smith is a lifelong educator, teacher, principal, district director, art lover, and writer. She's the author of a critically acclaimed novel, How to Be Dead, A Love Story, and four nonfiction books on art, learning, and brain development. Today, we'll be focused on her book for school administrators, Gardening in the Minefield, a survival guide for school administrators. It's awesome, by the way. She's a nationally recognized expert who has helped thousands of docents and museum educators master the art of leading dynamic inquiry-based conversations that have museum visitors and students. Is longing for more. Laura also works with the education departments of numerous museums in Los Angeles and New York. She is a consultant to the Museum of Contemporary Art, MOCA, and co-author of Contemporary Art Start, a Curriculum Guide to Contemporary Art and Culture, published by MOCA in 1985. It is the centerpiece of an inquiry-based art education program. She is a consultant to the Guggenheim Museum, the Met, and MoMA in New York City and and, uh, presents at their annual Teacher Institute on the Arts. She was a member of the Education Advisory Board of the Natural History Museum and served for eight years on the Landmarks Commission in the city of Santa Monica, California. She has published numerous articles in national journals for parents, teachers, and school leaders. However, writing is her lifelong passion. She is the author of Seven Times Smarter, 50 Activities, Games, and Projects to Develop the Multiple Intelligence in Your Child, Gardening in the Minefield, a Survival Guide for School Administrators and Classroom Confidential, 50 Things Great Teachers Do Behind Closed Doors and Putting the Social Back in Social Studies. Laurel is also a consultant, university lecturer, and professional development specialist. Laurel received a B.A. in art from, from Mount St. Mary's College and a master's degree in art history from California State University in Northridge. Her thesis was on a contemporary photorealism, She also studied art history at Oxford university when not writing, she enjoys painting, reading, watching good films and happy hour with friends. She lives with her writer, husband, Dernford King in Santa Monica, California, next life Paris. For more information, please consult www.laurelschmidt.com and I'll have that in the show notes so you can reach out to her. Hey, Laurel, thanks for joining me today. Say hi to everyone. Hi,
1: lovely to be with you.
0: Well, it's great to have you back. And, uh, um, it, it it's it's this is so awesome. I mean, you were actually on episode four ninety six where we talked about your your novel that's received a lot of attention. It's called How to Be Dead, which is really cool. Um, great book. Uh, before we get going, and could you give everyone a little overview of your novel?
1: Sure. Uh, <clears throat> the novel. I mean, it is my debut novel. I, after writing nonfiction for quite a while, I decided I wanted to try my hand at fiction. So. I was uh, doing some research on longevity because I'm of an age when longevity is important. And I was thinking I would write a nonfiction book. And then all of a sudden one day, this idea just dropped into my head like a meteor. And I had the idea for a book called How to Be Dead. And it's about a woman named Frances Beacon. <laughs> She's a longevity guru and a best-selling author. And she is at the peak of her second career in New York City when she steps off the curb and she's smacked by a cab and catapulted into the afterlife at the tender age of 65. And she is, since she'd told everyone she was going to be lived to be at least 100, she is very confused and shocked and royally pissed. And all she wants to do is go home and instead, She's enrolled in the university of the afterlife and where she's forced to learn the lessons that she failed to learn in life. And it's very difficult. She hates it. She's anti-authoritarian. She becomes a dropout and um, she has, makes a lot of trouble for herself. She, she resists looking at herself and looking at her heart and In addition to all the problems she makes for herself, there's a mysterious court that is watching her and they're going to decide her fate, whether she can live again and love again or if she's going to be sent to Frigus Rapono, which is cold storage. So her task is to embrace herself and her heart, which she manages to do. And um, in the end, it's a very compassionate comedic tale it's quite funny actually even though it's called how to be dead it's actually people the critics have said it's a thinking person's comedy about the afterlife and so Frances, in the end she realizes that the only way to live again is to learn how to be dead
0: i love it i love it i love it it was an awesome talk and All,
1: all the educators in your in your audience will relate to the idea of the university the afterlife and She's forced into a curriculum that is exactly what she needs and exactly what she hates. And so if you've ever tried to teach students who are resisting, you'll recognize Francis. And if you've ever tried to cope with your own insecurities, you'll recognize Francis too.
0: It's is so cool. And, and, uh, and all those people are to right too, because it's a thinking person's novel because you got to pay attention because there's some funny stuff. And some of it you'll miss if you're not paying attention. So, <laughs> which I love, I love that type of humor. So it's cool. And uh, well, it's great to have you back. And uh, I just remind the listeners, you'll find the link in your show notes, and I'll make sure I remind you of that because uh, you got to go listen to that interview and uh, and go find how how to be dead and uh, and read her novels. So good stuff. <laughs> So, uh, so Laurel, let's talk about you as an educator. You were a teacher, principal, and district director. Could you talk about, because I think you have a unique story on how you became a principal. So, uh, could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. I do. I loved teaching. I adored teaching. And I was uh, lucky enough to come to teaching in the era when um, it was very open structure. It was the early childhood It was progressive. We constructed our own curriculum. It was very free and very organic. And I had a fabulous time. And in my teaching career, I actually taught or was involved in every grade level from kindergarten through college because I have a very low threshold for boredom. And so every couple of years, I would tell my principal, I was very lucky. I had great principals. I would tell my principal, I need a new job. I need a new job. So he would change my grade level. And I I didn't care as long as I got something new. And I taught in wonderful schools. My first school had 24 languages. It was like the UN school. It was in Hollywood. We could actually see the Hollywood sign from the playground. And so we had all these many, many, many languages. And the only thing we could do is teach them English as fast as possible. So I got to be in charge of a program called Reading, Writing, and Rembrandt. And what it was is using art to entice children to talk. And because we knew all these cultures had amazing art. And so if we presented them with art and helped them, gave them the vocabulary and the opportunity, they would start to talk. And they did. And eventually we had an art gallery in the school and there was an art gallery, public art gallery across the street. And all the kids, every month, they would go to all the exhibits and eventually the children turned into tour guides in the museum. It was and and they were speaking in English. It was amazing. Awesome. Anyway, I loved teaching. So at some point along the way, I got a creden- an administrative credential, but it was just sort of like, oh, well, maybe someday I'll need that sucker. <laughs> and then I put it in my sock drawer and then that was the end of it. And I kept on teaching. And then I worked for a think tank, a um, education think tank for a couple of years. And I wrote curriculum, which again was very inquiry based. It was Socratic curriculum. Uh, based, uh, focused on social studies and the arts. So I'm teaching along, teaching along, having this wonderful time but I changed districts and the superintendent in the new district was astonishing. He was an astonishing educator. He was old school, John Dewey, progressive and I was at that time teaching in a very progressive school. We had no, no uh, textbooks. We, we cre- created our own curriculum. We didn't have grades. We had conferences with the kids, and we were very community-oriented. The kids were out in the community doing work, attending meetings. My kids clocked 264 public meetings in one year. That's how involved we were in studying democracy, studying community. How do people live together, historically and in contemporary? Anyway, so this wonderful superintendent, who happens to have the last name, same last name as me, his name was Neil Schmidt. And people used to say to me, "Oh, are you related to him? You know, like like I was, uh, <laughs> like I got the job uh, right. <laughs> from my you know avuncular friend or something." Anyway, I said we're only related temperamentally because he was he was my kind of mind, but also he was a very hard worker. So anyway, he and he said to me, "You should be a principal." And I'm like, "Yeah, right." And and he said, "No, really." And and I said, oh, "You know, whatever." And then one Saturday afternoon, I was laying on my bed, reading a book, phone rings. He says, hey, Laurel. He said, you know, there's an opening at such and such a school, you should apply. And I said, "Uh, okay, when's the application due? He said, next week. Oh, that's a killer. But I did it because I wanted to get closer to him, not, you know, intimately, but I wanted to learn from him. And the only way I could get close enough to learn is if he was my direct supervisor. So I, uh, I, I completely naively, because I'd never been a principal or assistant principal, I applied. I was picked for the uh, process, the process, which I, again, I didn't know. I went to the first interview. I walked into the room. There were 25 people in the room who wanted to talk to me. A lot of them had questions and they wanted to hear. And it went on for hours, 25 wow. people, parents, teachers, uh, board members whatever and so well at any rate I I made it to the last round I went and was interviewed by the superintendent and the union rep and when I left I came home and my husband said how to go I said I didn't get that job <laughs> I said let's go let's go out and have a drink and we were walking out the door and the phone rang and I I just kept walking I was ready for cocktails and My husband said to me, he said, Neil's on the phone. I was the superintendent. I said, you know, I said, don't joke with me. I really can't take it right now. He said, no, no, it's Neil. I said, I can't take it. And he said, Neil's on the phone. So I I picked up the phone and Neil said, if you want the job, he said, come talk to me tomorrow morning and I'll tell you all about it. So what he had to tell me, though, was that the school had not had a principal for an entire year because the community and the teachers were locked in combat. And they could never agree on a principal. And then one time they agreed on a candidate and the person pulled out because they sensed how much turmoil there was. So it was a school in uh, deep, deep dysfunction. And, um, but I took the job and I learned a lot. So that's how I got to be a principal.
0: That's awesome. (laughs) What a cool story. That's, gee.
1: Yeah. You know, it's sort of like fools, you know, fools, uh. (laughs) Going where angels fear
0: to tread. That's awesome. That's that's cool. So, well, what a neat, you know, in some parts of it. I mean, really identify with that phone call there that you're talking about. Going, yeah, don't don't mess with me. <laughs> you know, but no, yes, you, there's a phone call from your superintendent. <laughs> oh. <Don't. laughs> I like that. that uh, well, cool story. Well, that's awesome because, uh, you know, what we're going to talk about is uh, something that came out of you doing all that work as a principal, which uh, you developed uh, uh, this book that we're going to talk about today. Uh, so let's start looking into your book, Gardening in the Minefield, a survival guide for school administrators. So what's the minefield?
1: Oh, <laughs> well, the minefield, I have to say, um, before – This book was written a few years ago, and the minefield is exactly the same, but writ large. It is uh, the minefield for principals has changed uh, dramatically because of the introduction of the internet, social media, the public nature of everything that we do, even though we go to a school we go into our office. You would think it's this cloistered little place. It doesn't look dangerous at all. In fact, it is a minefield. So here are some of the things that are in the minefield. First of all, there's the culture of the school. When you become a principal, you don't know what the culture of the school is. But the culture of the school, the way to talk about it is how things are done here. And nobody, nobody puts that up on a big banner and hangs it on the front of the school. It's not on the you no know, mascot or the sweatshirt or anything, but how things are done here is part of the minefield. And you have to, you have to learn that. And there are lots of covert ways and overt ways that information will come to you. But it's critically important. And that includes the culture of the staff, the culture of the community, the culture of parents, the culture of the parents who are in power. And those are all parts of the lot minefield there's also hierarchy in the staff there are certain staff members that have power and they wield that power over other people and so they become the they are the shadow leader of the school even though you are the named leader of the school so that's the thing um certainly the whole issue of evaluation you get into a school and then you suddenly learn as i did no one had been evaluated for 10 years and, and then you say, oh, there's, a, there's this process called evaluation. Here's what it looks like. Wow. <laughs> so that can, of course, be a hugely disruptive element, and people will you know fight against it. There's the sheer volume of the work, the volume that you can never be at your best because you are constantly tired, and there's constantly more, and that's just a fact of the job. But it means that frequently you are operating at a lower than really super conscious level because you're just tired. And so you don't see the pitfalls. There's also people who are unhinged and they don't look insane at first. Um, But the insanity comes out when you cross paths with them in a certain way. But it's also true that there are people in the school and events in the school that can unhinge you. And so you end up having, we'll talk a little bit more about this later. There's a whole minefield inside you that needs to be attended to. And then there's entitlement, big, big entitlement issues, where certain people in the community expect certain things of you. And they're so entitled that they don't even think they have to tell you about that anymore. You're just supposed to understand that what their child gets in terms of treatment, what they get in terms of treatment. And there are people on the staff who feel entitled. And again, none of those things are visible at first, but they can blow your, your leg off if, you're not, if you don't know where to step. And so one of the things that you have to do as you start uh, navigating this minefield is you have to figure out how to find out more about it, but in a way that is accurate. Um, you have to be kind of covert. You have to observe. You have to ask questions like, help me understand or tell me more. For example, I found that the way classes were constructed in my school, the way the children were passed from third grade to fourth grade, there was a very, very elaborate system that made sure that all the PTA parents' kids got to the good teachers and the rest of the kids were roadkill. And so I I found this out, but I couldn't say, listen, that's very, very unfair what you're doing. That's not just. So I had to say, help me understand me understand how this works and I would just act like the naive and then I would get more information and more information. Occasionally there would be people who would come to me and say, would you like me to tell you the history of the school? And I would say, um, you know, I, I really have another meeting I have to go to because I knew what I was going to get would be incredibly slanted and usually running out the door. One of them would say something, I, did you know that somebody had a baby with the last principal? And then I'm like, What? <laughs> what? So it is, it's a such, and especially in elementary school, it looks so peaceful, the little children out on the playground, they line up for their milk and cookies in kindergarten. And guess what? It's it's a treacherous, fascinating landscape. That's the minefield.
0: What a g- awesome description of it, too. I got to tell you, this is... Uh... Uh, you know, it's, uh, there's just so many aspects to this stuff that when you start thinking about becoming an administrator, you almost really need to have somebody <laughs> sit down and say, okay, we're going to talk for a minute, all right, because do you realize that you're stepping into a new level of, uh, have you lost your mind? So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You have, you need, yeah, you do need some kind of a coach or a mentor or uh, you know, psychic or seer or something to help you out
0: so much so, and it's, so-
1: it'll still be hard and it, but it is fascinating um i've always said that the going into leadership the the whole whole um task of leadership is human development but human is of course that's the that's the trick of it they're dealing with human beings and it's so complex, but it's fascinating.
0: That it is, that it is. And it's, uh, it is complex, but you are so right about it. being fascinating. And it's addictive too, by the way. Um, <laughs> we can talk more about that later. We had, um, so, you know, one of the things that it's happened over time is that, uh, you know, there are they're really kind of like three main areas that have emerged as part of the role of of the principal thinking about what effective lead leadership is and, and what it falls into. And, and the three parts are politics, psychology, and vision. At the beginning of your book, this is noted. If you spent much time in the teaching ranks, it's unlikely that politics is your strong suit. Let's talk about that statement.
1: Well, I think because teachers, people who are long-term teachers, what do they love? <clears throat> they love learning. They love teaching. They love to be with kids. Every year, they get a crop of kids, and they the good teachers. They just look at those kids, and they grow them, and they love them, and they're they're open hearted, and they're generous with their time, and their intellect, and their heart. That's not politics. That's the opposite of politics. Um, And but and so when you're at the teaching level, you're at the very bottom of a bureaucracy, and if you're lucky, and you have a good principal you're protected enough that you get to do the real work of education the true work of education which is educate but above that there's a bureaucracy that functions simply on on ritual and above that there's a whole political layer that is about power and this is what classroom teachers don't generally wield and they're not generally attracted to power they're again They're they're the opposite of that. But the power structure of any bureaucracy is powerful. And it's, the, the school district has a power structure, the community does, the city, the state, the federal government. There are all those layers. And what's very interesting is they used to say all politics is local. And people would nod their head and say, yeah, 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 whatever. But it seems to me that because of the internet, that really, it has made global politics local. And by that, I mean that there are issues that pop up around the country. And the next thing you know, you could have a question in your mailbox about that question. A person, you may not, there may be no one in your community talking about banning books Someone goes on the fa- on Facebook, or they go on the internet, and they read about this, or a relative calls and says, oh, we're banning books in our district. And suddenly, you get a question, maybe at a public meeting, about are we banning books? Which books are we banning? Do we still have this book in our library? Do we have that book in our library? So national politics, national issues can become personal to you. Um, there, And the, some of the issues, of course, are gigantic. Guns, school safety, book banning, don't say gay, DNA test kits. I'm sure there are probably principals next week who will get a question, are you going to be buying DNA test kits for us? Because they got those in Uvalde. And you need to be ready to be able to answer that question. Um, Critical race theory. Critical race theory has bounced all over the country. In so many permutations, you have to be able to answer questions about that, even though critical race theory may never, ever have been discussed in your locale before. So the thing is yes, you need to be an educator, but sometimes when you're dealing with political issues, you have to be able to act like a politician, which means you have to be able to talk like a politician, which means You need media training. There really is, in in the political world, if you persist in being naive, you will probably not last. You have to understand that when people are dealing with political issues, behind the scenes there is money and there's power, but it's always behind the scenes. These are not the things that are announced. People announce policies. And you might look at the policy and scratch your head and go, what the hell is that about? We don't need that. What? 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 It seems like it's out of the blue. It's not out of the blue. It's someone's idea that they have pushed forward and they've cloaked it in language that looks like, oh, there's a good idea. And it passes without objection sometimes. And then you realize, oh, that's what that means. But if you stand up in public and say, what's that about? I don't understand. Well, you know what? You're you're not fit for the job in their eyes, because people play the political game of nodding their heads and saying yes. And then afterward, out in the cloakroom, out in the hallway, somebody whispers to you, it's about blah blah. And then you know, okay, that's the reason. It's not a good one, but that's the reason. So media training means that you learn how to answer difficult questions in a way that two things. You do not step on a landmine. And secondly, you use it as an opportunity to promote what you are doing right on the same subject, what you have been doing well all the time related to that subject, what your plans are in the future on that subject. It's a formula that people use. And if you learn it, and you can learn it in Gardening in the Minefield, I have a chapter where I teach you this formula. It's not hard to use and you can practice. And one of the ways, Once you recognize it, you will see politicians using it all the time. All, all the time. When they are asked a question, they will use this ABC formula to answer it. And it sounds like, well, you're just being a a politician then. No, you're using a political moment to promote your agenda. And your agenda is about kids. And your agenda is about your school. And so you want to be able to say what is good and right about your school while still attending to the concerns of the community. Because no matter what question, and this is so interesting in schools, no matter what question is asked, even if it seems like a really nasty gotcha question, underneath what parents really want to know is, is my kid safe? Will he or she get a good education? That's what they want to know. And so if you're able to craft an answer that allays some of their fears, but mainly says, but this is what we are doing here with your kids to make sure they are safe, that they're learning, that every day they're making progress. Then the parents generally forget about the question they ask because they're so happy with what they've heard. But again, you need to... You need to understand that and learn it and use it. And again, you might think, I got enough on my plate. I can't learn anything else. I can barely keep my head up. That's true. But you don't want to have to duck because there are bullets flying at you. So if you learn how to use, if you use media training and you really learn how to use this, when the difficult questions come, You'll answer them and then you'll be proud of yourself. And you know what, the rest of the community will too. This is the other thing that I have noticed in, political, in community meetings where it gets political. Most of the people in the room are rooting for you. They want the principal to succeed. They want their school to be good. They want to know that they're in good hands. And if other people persist in asking mean questions, pointed questions, eventually the rest of the community gets sick of them doing that and they will stand up and talk for you. And so it, it, it is to your benefit, absolutely to your benefit to master that skill. Yeah.
0: You know, that's a, that's so awesome. Cause we net, it's something that we really don't get training in. I mean, we, what ends up happening is you kind of uh, um, you know, you, you interviewed for the job, you get, maybe you got a call back and uh, and then you, somewhere online, you got the job. And, uh, and then what happened was a lot of on the job training, <laughs> but right. And, um, you know, talking with the media is one of those that really shouldn't be left to the chance that you say the right thing, especially when there's some tools that you could, uh, um, you know, ignite or utilize for your own purpose. Can you mention one or two that might be uh, helpful that, you know, that come to mind when you talk about uh, tools that in learning how to use the media you might be able to use?
1: Okay, well, uh, one is, <clears throat> and this is just personal, this is your personal control. You have to be very calm. You have to be calm. You have to actually do, take a deep breath. When somebody asks you something or the media, if the media, if you actually are talking to newspapers or television cameras, you know you're already, it's red alert. They don't come around for nothing. So you need to be calm and realize that they'll stand there as long as they need to, to get their story, which means that you can take a moment or two to to compose yourself. Just because somebody fires a question at you, you don't have to fire an answer back. You can compose yourself. And composure is, again, one of the things that people want to see. They want to know that this person is in control. I mean, we don't in California. When I was a director, I was in charge of school safety. Well, it's California. We have earthquakes. Parents want to know all the time, what are you going to do if there's a big earthquake? The big one. They always talk about the big one. You people have hurricanes or something like that, but (laughs) we have earthquakes. You have to know that every single school has an earthquake plan and they have that in place. So as an administrator, you need to know that you've done the job. You've done your homework on those things like school safety because very likely one of the most common reasons you'll be facing the press will be a school safety issue. And so get smart about school safety. Learn what your school safety plan is. Know it by heart. And then when you walk around your school and supervise instruction, which you will do, make sure that the elements of your school safety plan are in place. Are the doors open? Are they closed? Are are there Obstacles, all those kinds of things, so that when you face the press, you can um, answer them. And the other thing is that the press will come back. You don't have to tell them everything. You can tell them a little bit, and then you can say, "And I have to. I have. I will come back to you in blah blah. I'll be back in a half an hour. I'll be back. You can contact me here. You can contact me there. So you don't have to give them an entire autopsy of what's gone on." Um, but you give them enough you get. And again, it is always that you end whatever you've said on the positives of what you are doing and what you're doing for children.
0: That's excellent. I appreciate it. You know, and you know, one of the things that uh, especially in this world that we're in, I mean, you never know when you're going to end up having to talk with the media or having to write something for the media or having to discuss something that's going to appear eventually in the media. And, and uh, having some sort of training on how to talk with them is so important because, I mean, there's... Actually, a
1: friend of mine, uh, who was she was the vice president of Bristol-Myers Squibb, and she did communication, communication constantly. And she said about writing, <clears throat> if, you, if you're going to write something that's going out, she said, if you would not be comfortable having it on the front page of the New York Times tomorrow, do not send. We'll we'll talk more
0: about that later. I got to tell you though, I love that because that's that's one of those things. uh, Just a note, as a you know, when I was an assistant principal, I worked in a school where uh, um, there was the phantom administrator evaluator of written memos. All right, and what this person would do is take the current memo and circle poor grammar or structural errors and things like this or spelling errors in red, and then post them on the English department workroom oh. bulletin board. Oh. <laughs> and so oh. if you ever wanted, and what's funny is that I was there at a time when I'm pretty sure I figured out who it was, but you know, I'm not hunting anyone down. So it's like, I just, you just look forward to, you send out a memo, go to the English room and see what they said about it. So, you know, who the person said about it. Cause it was always one person. A lot yes. of people kept their distance from that person.
1: Yeah, yeah. but uh, there's a lot of stealth activity on faculties. <laughs> yes, whether it helps you or not, that's that's another question.
0: It, it, it really is, and I, and, you know, one of the things that uh, we've got to talk about here is that uh, you know we get into this right at the beginning, the idea of uh, politics uh, being something because you know the whole idea is that as a teacher you don't really have to deal with that, or or if you. Should have stumbled through it, and they forgive you because you're you're the teacher of my kid, you know, that type of thing. But uh, they're not as forgiving with the principal. And so let's talk a little bit about some of the things in politics that uh, um, she has to become adept at, whether she wants to or not. I mean, can you talk a little bit about some of those main areas that they need to be develop some political savvy?
1: Well, I think you know we've touched on a lot of it already um which is the communication part but it's also that you have to pay attention to the political landscape even though all of your energy is going into your school which means you do need to occasionally look at watch a board meeting you do need to look at the board agenda you if there are you know awards being given out to schools or to educators and all that you need to show up. So it's, um, it's, it's again, it feels like sometimes the things that we have to do in service of politics are interfering with our ability to do the real job. But it, it is the reality of schools that they are linked, that they are intertwined, and it behooves you as a principal to get smarter. And if you think you're not, really good at it yet um, find a principal who's survived a long time and take them out for drinks get them liquored up a little and then tell them <laughs> listen tell me what's really going on here and and you'll learn you'll learn a lot
0: very much so you know it's funny because like one of the, the lessons I learned was that there are people who you need to give them your time and sometimes that meant uh, spending a you know have a have a um, I don't drink coffee so I'd, I'd have a Diet Coke while they drink coffee you know, in the morning or, or going to meet them once in a while for a early dinner or something like this. And, and just, you know, if you spent time like that, not only did you learn stuff, but you also then, um, made a mover and shaker kind of happy that you paid attention to them. And it's funny that I never, never in a million years when I was a teacher ever thought that that was something that we would have had, you know, that my administrators had to do, but I realized rather quickly that, uh, it's important to do that because some of those same people that you're talking with are going to end up singing your praises because you spent time with them um, or not, depending <laughs> on the relationship. Um, but it's that that connectivity that you're trying to do. And, you know, you can't think that they'll – What the funny thing about the politics of it is that you can't actually think that you'll get anything out of some stuff that you do because it may not even work in your favor, you know, and it's – but it it's worth trying because it's a that's a little talk about them. The word minefield fits very well. <laughs> I like that. The uh, you know so uh, let's talk a little bit. Let's shift gears. Let's talk about psychology. I've heard you refer to teaching as a famine culture. Could you explain what you're talking about?
1: Yes, this was this came out of being a principal and observing my staff and trying to understand what was going on. I had I was in a school that was wealthy to begin with. The PTA, the Parents Association, raised two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year just for extras in the classroom. Oh my just gosh! Just for extras? <laughs> wow! I know it, it was staggering to me because all of my teaching experience had been in very very poor communities, multicultural communities, marginal communities, co- communities of color. I loved. I loved the schools where I taught. I was used to being immersed in life and in all these beautiful cultures and languages and different kinds of food and all that. And then I ended up being a principal in a school that was very different, very wealthy. And yet, when it came time to have budget meetings where the teachers and the PTA would sit down to talk about how shall we spend this $250,000, there were pitched battles. It was ugly. People, Some people didn't want to go to the meetings. Other people couldn't wait to get there, but it was always, always ugly. And I could not understand what is going on here. There were, I observed hoarding. Again, a school with tons and tons of stuff, but everyone who's been in a school knows about hoarding. That people have construction paper in their closets that's so old, the, the dye. Has leaked out of the edges, but if you ask them, can I have a piece of that purple paper? Absolutely not. I might need it in the year aught five, and so <laughs> that I'm. So I observed hoarding. I observed an undertone of anger and sometimes outbursts of anger that I didn't really understand. And there was antisocial behavior amongst the staff. There was tension and antisocial behavior, um, and then. Um, The other thing that was mind-boggling, the PTA gave me $25,000 just to use for conference fees so that people could go to conferences. And I'm in Los Angeles. Disneyland is very nearby. They have conferences across the street from Disneyland all the time. You could go there, sign into the conference, go to Disneyland. Nobody would know. But there were people on my staff with the offer of money to go to all kinds of conferences would never, ever go. They would... They refused to do any voluntary professional development involuntary. They would show up, stick their fingers in their ears and get through it, but voluntary no. And I'm like, are you kidding me? If I were in a school with this kind of money, I would be at a conference every other week. So anyway, I couldn't understand it. I just couldn't understand it. But the one thing I did observe that was very interesting, I used to take chocolate kisses, little Hershey's kisses, and I would throw them in the teacher's boxes. Randomly, Tuesday, Friday, whatever. Suddenly, there would be this crush of people all around the mailboxes, people I hadn't seen in months because they were hermits and they stayed in their rooms, came out to get their Hershey's Kiss. So I knew there was a network of communication. And then one came into my office and she said, someone stole my Hershey's Kiss. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was like, I reached in my drawer, handed her a five or six and said, don't worry, sweetie, here you go. And so all of this, I'm trying to process, what is this about? And then somebody may, during the summer, I was the principal of special ed summer school. And it was summer and it was special ed, come on. So I would get coffee cake and muffins and stuff like that and put it in the office. So when people came, there was food. So we were leaving the last day and I said goodbye to this one teacher. I didn't know her particularly well, but anyway, I said goodbye to her, and she said, thank you very much. And I said, oh, you're welcome, you know, whatever. And she said, you were a good principal. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And she said, you fed us. And I said, oh, my God, there it is. There it is. So I found this amazing book called Man and Society in Calamity. And it's, it was written in 1946 by a man named Pitaram Sorokin. And he wrote about different calamities and what were the social, psychological, and emotional effects on people when they went through calamities. And one of the calamities was famine. I looked at the characteristics of famine victims. I looked at my staff. It was practically a perfect match. And so what they talked about was the idea that when you're subjected to a famine and then the abundance comes after that, you don't recover. You still keep thinking about the famine and you worry that famine will come back. And therefore, your behavior is of a feminist. For example, what they said about famines is that the mind is monopolized by the calamity, that there is a suppression in learning in, in learning activities, which was exactly what I was seeing my staff. They said so there's a suppression in any activity that doesn't promote, doesn't relieve the calamity. There is there is apathy alternating with anger. I certainly saw that in my staff. Sudden, sharp emotional changes in in emotions, a decreasing capacity to focus on the important issues, and also attacks on those who cannot or will not provide relief. And if you so if you look at so then I was thinking teaching, teaching as a famine culture. Of course it is. Every year. Teachers find out if they're gonna have a salary raise or salary reduction. Are you going to have money for Xerox paper or no money for Xerox paper? Are you going to have an aid in your classroom or no aid? Is the district budget going up or down? Are teachers being laid off? In New York City this year, right? I was in New York in July talking to teachers who were in very, very battered emotional condition because they had just gone through the whole pandemic. 2 years of what everybody knows was an agony. And then the district said, "Oh, we don't have as many children this year, so we are going to have to deal with excessing." They called it excessing. They didn't say we're going to fire you. They said we're we're excessing, which meant they're getting rid of teachers. And so here these people had given so much during the pandemic, which was a time of which was a time of a plague, a calamity and the reward is they were considered excess. So, and I mean, you know this, teachers sometimes teachers say that they pay at least $5,000 a year out of their own money to buy supplies for their classroom, particularly elementary. So I looked and I thought, well, sure, it is a famine culture. No wonder people act this way. They have all the characteristics of feminists. So then I thought, all right, what do we do about this? <clears throat> So I started focusing on notions of abundance, and I decided that I would counteract the famine by building an abundance culture where every chance I got, I would say, look how lucky we are. We have this brilliant person on the staff who knows technology. We have this brilliant person who will do this. We get to do this together. We have this opportunity. We have that opportunity. What do you want to share? And I kept focusing on, instead of hoarding, I kept focusing on sharing. What else do you have to share? How can we share with each other? And one of, the, <clears throat> one of the things I did that helped a lot for building that cohesion and sharing is I instituted something called visiting day. And on visiting day, I would teach a class for an hour and my assistant principal would teach a class the next hour. And whoever's class we were teaching, they got to go and wander around the school and watch their peers teach. And what happened is they started seeing things that people were doing in other classrooms that they really liked. And so then they started talking to that person and then they started sharing. And so instead of hoarding, I even had teachers in this famine mentality. I had a teacher who came into my office almost weeping and she said of another younger teacher, she stole my poetry lesson and that was just devastating to me that that people were so uh, felt so needy that they couldn't celebrate the idea that somebody wanted their poetry lesson and a whole bunch more kids were going to study poetry. It was so lovely, and instead, it was an affront. It was a wound to their psyche. So um, that's the that's the famine culture, and I have observed it over and over and over again. And it continues it, right now in many, many cities, schools are cutting back, they're cutting budgets, they don't have the tax base because of the pandemic, so the schools are on the chopping block, and who feels it teachers
0: It's crazy, isn't it? it's like uh and just as a note i just I have to admit this because i think i th- i think Far enough in the past it's been that uh, this is, (laughs) there's no one still angry at me, but uh, I, at one time I was a history teacher and I also did theater in the school. I was the theater sponsor and, and uh, which meant that I had a storage room. And Uh uh, what happened was the school system decided uh, that they were only going to give so much paper to each school um, per semester. And uh, um, well, they did that. And then what happened was they suddenly had all this paper towards the end of the year that they realized, oh my gosh, we've got too much surplus paper left. So they brought in a couple pallets in our school and they did this across that system. It had, I think it had about 15 high schools. So I can only imagine the number of schools and pallets of paper that were delivered because we had a lot of paper delivered to our school. And uh, so basically the, 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 uh, the school had a lot of dysfunction. Just know that. So the announcement that was made had to do with, if you need paper, time to get the paper now. And so I made sure that I put a bunch of that paper in my storage room. Right. And, uh, uh the next year, uh, don't hate me for this, but I used it in order to get kids out of class so that, uh, <laughs> so, that, so that they could come do theater <laughs> and do rehearsal. I'd say, uh so if I need to use Johnny, can I give you a couple of reams of paper and uh
1: Oh that would be awesome.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so yes, I You
1: are a perfect example of <laughs> teaching as a famine culture. That is absolutely perfect. Thanks. The bartering part, that's a, n- a little new wrinkle I hadn't heard before, <laughs> but I love it.
0: I was I, I learned well from a character on uh you know on MASH, you know, radar, if you know that show and and Klinger yeah. and, and you know, it's like one of those things that uh um, I was like, it worked out well too. I was able to, because uh, some people use up their ration of paper like that, and it's like, oh my gosh, yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, and and
1: yet, it's when you, if you step outside of the education world and look at it, you think that is pathetic. You are yes. a teacher. You need paper and pencils, and they're telling you you can't have paper. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Definitely still going on, still going on. Yes. So, so just as a note, I just wanted to make sure that you knew that you are talking to one of those who represents that culture.
1: I love it. <laughs>
0: um, so let's talk about a leader and their health. I mean, why should a leader be concerned about uh, his or her mental health?
1: Uh, because it's sometimes it's all that you have standing between you and the forces of evil, you and, you know, complete and utter collapse. You are, you are your own best resource when it comes to how are you going to get this job done, which means your strength, your courage, your persistence, and all of those things are inner qualities, inner qualities that you have to summon every day and not just every day, but on a minute to minute basis. I think this is something that um, until you've been a principal, you don't realize That your office door, if your office door is open, you are open for business, which means from minute to minute, anyone can walk by. Someone who's having a personal crisis, someone who just wants to have a day off, someone who doesn't have paper and is enraged, someone whose chocolate was stolen. Who knows who's going to come through your door? And from minute to minute, you have to make assessments of what do I need to do in this situation? with regard to this person's mental state but here's the problem if your own mental state is vulnerable you are subject to a lot of uh agony so here's what i uh, talked about in in gardening the minefield which is this idea of who's renting space in your head because this is the truth we all First of all, we all have neuroses. We all make mistakes. We're all bad news on the job some days. That's just just the truth. That's just about having a pulse, so fine. But who's renting space in your head is about the baggage, the triggers, the vulnerabilities, the voices inside your head that make you vulnerable. And those voices can come from childhood, from your culture, from your religious background, from family dynamics, from personal experiences, from trauma. But they are internal voices that we may not hear anymore, but they are influencing our reaction to people and to events. So you can have one person walk in your office and they yeah, they seem to leave you a little unhinged, you're fine, whatever, it's okay, sweetie, you know, and you fix them up and out they go. Next person comes in and you wanna slug them, why? It's not about them. It's about you because they remind you of something or they stir something in you. And what we also have, besides all this baggage, is we have patterns of behavior that we learned for survival in our childhood, in our family system, in our education, maybe in our last job. I call them sappers because they sap your strength. They sap your control. They sap your consciousness and they put you in an unconscious place where you unconsciously and automatically respond in a way that may not be good leadership, but it may not be good for you. And so the sappers, they're those voices in your head and they take away your locus of control and they're in charge. So I'm going to list some sappers and your listeners can just see if they recognize any of these. And of course they will. Then... If you are a listener and you recognize two or three of these things, worry not. Worry not. Okay, so there's the pleaser. Some of us have an instinct that we want to please people. So if somebody comes in and they're making a demand, even if the demand is ridiculous, there's something in you that says, I need to please this person. That might come from your mom or your dad or Catholic school or whatever. Who knows? There's a critic. A lot of people are living with a critic in their head. Somebody, some voice in there that says, oh, my God, I can't believe you did that. can't believe you said that. You sound like an idiot. You know, when are you going to learn that lesson? Look at you. And the critic sometimes then leads to procrastination. Some of us are procrastinators. We keep putting things off and putting things off and putting off those painful things. And a lot of times it's not because you're lazy or stupid or you really don't want to do the job. It's because you want to do it perfectly. And right at the moment, you don't have the information that you need to do, to respond. You don't have the support or the manpower. You don't have the, the focus, the mental attention at the moment. You don't have a minute to yourself. I had a budget report. My first year as a principal, oh my God, I'm horrible with numbers. Me, I'm an art person, right? I love art. I love language and numbers do not speak to me. So there was this budget report. And it was on my desk and I was supposed to turn it into the district, right? I knew nothing, nothing about this. I kept shoving it to the side, shoving it aside, put it in my inbox, then bury it, cover it up, cover it up. Finally, one day I said to my assistant principal, not my assistant principal, my administrative assistant, who was fabulous. The woman spoke eight languages. She was brilliant, brilliant. What she was doing in that job is another story. <laughs> so I said to her, Linda, I, I have a big problem. I said, I have this budget report. It's due. It's probably overdue by now. I haven't even looked at the due date because I'm scared to look at it. And I said, I don't know what to do. And she said, oh, well, she said, don't worry about that. She said, just take the same numbers from last year, fill them in and then say in these columns over here and send it in, it'll be fine. I said, are you kidding me? And she said, no, no, She said they do that every year. She said, they adjust the budget. It doesn't matter. She said, Whatever you put on it doesn't matter, just do it. I said, oh my God, I want to, you know, I, want, I wanted to worship the woman for that. Okay, I was procrastinating because I didn't know what to do. And so sometimes we procrastinate because we want to do things well, but we can't. All right, there are a couple of other ones. Worriers, but even if you're doing your best, you worry. Okay, what else is going to happen? What else is going to happen? And you wear yourself out. I finally taught myself, because I'm a big worrier, I would say, all right, look, you can worry about that, but it's too soon. It's too soon to worry. Okay. That's not happening for two weeks. So if you want to worry about it next week, that's fine. But right now you don't have to. So then I would just push it away and push it away. And my neurosis would creep back. And then I would say, okay, too soon. Go back in the closet for a while. But worriers, um, it's very bad for your physical health as well as, your, well as your mental health. You cause stress that you don't need. There's enough stress out there without that. And then there's the controller, which is a, a, an impossible, impossible situation to be in in a school where there are thousands of moving parts. You cannot control the thing. You can work with it. It's, it's wild. It's instinctive. It's all over the place. And what you have to do is embrace it and love it and see what you can do. But controlling it, that does not happen. And people who try to control tend, unfortunately, to focus on small things that they can't control, which makes them <clears throat> look like pee dance or like they're just nitpicking at small things. And it's really that instinct. So if you recognize these people inside of you, there are many things that you can do. First of all, if you read in my book, in Who's Renting Space in Your Head? I actually give little templates for how you, re- how you eject, how you evict each one of those sappers. What do you say to yourself? What mantra do you use? How do you, what habits do you pick up to get rid of those? The other thing is, if you have medical insurance that covers therapy, get it. Get therapy. Because if nothing else, you pay or your district pays, your healthcare pays for you to go and sit and you can just unload to the therapist. And you don't have to worry, does she think I'm crazy? It doesn't matter. She's got the cone of silence around her. She's not going to say anything. Exactly. And then you can leave. And maybe you don't get all the answers, but at least you get some relief. But if you have a good therapist, you find out why you've got those voices in your head and you can, she can help you evict them. The other thing you can do is get a mentor. Get a trusted mentor and meet with that person regularly. And you tell your mentor, look, this is what I'm dealing with. This is what I'm dealing with. And again, your mentor could say, okay, this thing is definitely complicated. We've got to talk about this a lot. This one, you, you can get rid of that. Do blah, blah, blah. And then you go, oh, thank you very much. You feel better. The other thing is I had, I developed a mantra. I had to say something because, you know you have to talk to yourself and you want to say nice things instead of cruel, critical things. And so I started saying, all progress is progress. All progress is progress because there was, there was so much to do. There was no way to measure in big amounts. Wow. I did that. You know, the whole third grade passed their reading tests at 95th percentile. No, that's not going to happen. So anytime you make progress, you have to say all progress is progress. And, and in that way, you begin, you, you soothe yourself and you begin to say, I'm doing, I'm doing well. The thing about it is it's hard. Human dynamics is very hard and you're playing, it's like playing chess from both sides of the board. You have to see where you are moving. You have to see where that other person is moving and you can't see much about them but you really can know your own vulnerabilities. My vulnerability was people yelling. Weird. My mother wasn't a big yeller. She didn't yell a lot. But when she yelled, it meant somebody was in trouble. So if I had a parent come in and sit in my office and start yelling, I'm looking around the room to see who's in trouble. There's the only person is me. So I'm thinking I'm in trouble. Okay, well, that was just childhood stuff catching up with me. But it made me feel so vulnerable that it was hard to look at that person and reasonably say all right let's let's figure out what's going on here what's going on here because so much of my energy was tied up with my own anxiety of oh i must be in trouble because mom jelly. so those are the kinds of things if you can get a handle on those you can really really calm yourself down to a place where you can make better sense of the world around you and the thing is if you do if you try to do this you will grow you will get stronger, you'll get clearer, you'll get more courageous. There will be times when it will be painful and you will build up, as my beloved superintendent told me, scar tissue. You're going to get scar tissue, Laurel. And of course, I at the time he would say it, he would smile. And I would think, why are you smiling? <laughs> this is not good. But um, But the thing is, if you master those things in your work life, it also... Uh, it also influences your personal life. And so your personal life gets better when your work life gets better in that way. So that's why mental health is really, really important.
0: That is so powerful. I mean, that whole section, and just the, because there's so many ways that it comes back to haunt you if you're, if it's not happening right. I mean, it's just everything from snipping at people to, you know, getting worse where you're (laughs) Maybe getting combative with people, and, so, and I don't mean physically. I just mean you know where you start picking your own fights. And it's like you got enough other problems to go on without not doing that. I mean, it's like you know it, uh, because that's something that because uh, I'm like you. One of the things that uh, I have a problem with is that I'm a worrier, and you know, and it, and when you when you start getting like, oh my gosh, Monday morning I made an appointment at eight o'clock to meet with people who hate me. <laughs> you know, it's like, why exactly. did I do that at 8 a.m.? That You know, and so all weekend long, you're going, what's this going to be about? You know, and, and I got better as my career went on in that area, but at the same time, you still, you, I still had that worrier part of me. It's like, you know, I want to say, thanks, Dad. You know, that's my dad. I'm just like my dad, man. And and it, But it just, it would come through in many different ways. And, uh, you know, and one of the other things is that, you know, sometimes... You know just the idea that some of the the angst or something like this, one of the things that I learned after time to help me deal with that was and it was funny. I had a a uh, former uh, um, engineer who had retired and um, after a long lucrative career and I hired him to be my uh, guardian of the parking lot and uh, and so he he was in a, uh, a golf cart that we bought and it was to keep you know alien invaders off the campus and to keep our own. Creatures from leaving the campus, and and uh, so he had a blast doing that. And so, you know, there's a couple things that I used to do, and this was one of them because I realized that things were getting a little rough. And he told me one day, he said, he said, Steve, just call me on the radio. He said, we don't have to talk. He said, I'll come pick you up, and we'll just drive around campus, and you can chill out. And I, and I said, that's awesome, man. And so I, I do that, and I tell people, if you see me in the golf cart, I'm not having fun. I am. I've put myself in time out. So please just give me about 10 minutes. All right. 10, 15 minutes. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm there because I'm not being good in the sandbox. All right. So
1: it's, uh, oh my and, God. That is brilliant. That what? is a brilliant thing. But see, that's survival. That's how you build mental health, little mental health moments into your day. That is brilliant.
0: Thanks. It was something that really paid off because I was so thankful for him. Because I mean, and, and what was cool was sometimes he'd surprise me with like a like a uh, hot dog from this really cool restaurant down the road or something like this. He'd go here, eat this. Well, I'm, I just no, just eat it, just, just eat the thing, man. And I, you know, and it it was good, and it was like chill chill out time. And then before you knew it, I'd be getting off the golf cart and going back in. But I oh. I, I got to tell colleagues that that's one of the things that you know you just have to figure out what works for you because if you don't, oh my gosh, man. So cool stuff. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, um, is, is also something that's important as a as a leader is focusing on your own personal gr- your personal growth. Can you talk about that?
1: Definitely. I, um, <clears throat> I I'm a learner. Anyway, I love I love to learn. I I'm always poking around to find something new, uh, and uh, so and I also found that when I was on the job there were things that I hadn't prepared for because I had now been a principal like media training. I hadn't had media training. I had to get, I had to get media training. Um, But, and I read a lot of, you know, different theories. And my, my district was very, very focused on racial um, justice. And so um, we spent a lot of time reading articles and talking about that and all But, you know, on the outside, personal growth is what do you do outside of the job if there is an outside? And that's what you need to make sure. There needs to be an outside of the job. Whatever hours that you're away, if you can do some things that please you or if nothing else, they give you a big escape for a little while. And so um, my husband is a screenwriter and we go to movies all the time. And so sometimes he would call me at work and he'd say, How was your day? I said, Oh, don't ask. And he said, Come on, I'll meet you. And he would meet me like around 4.30 down at the multiplex. We'd go to a movie. For two hours, I would sit in the dark. No one knew where I was, right? I was in someone else's life. Nice. I didn't have to think about myself. I looked at their life and maybe they were having problems too. <laughs> oh, that's even better. Right. right and at right. the end it's all resolved. Oh, great. And then we leave, we go to happy hour, get a little wine. And and it it um there's a thing called dechexis, where you are able to get that stuff out of you where you let go of of the problems and the things that are plaguing you. And you need to be able to do that. And so going to movies was a big one for me and, um, and, you know, spending time with my husband, hanging out with him. He's a very cool guy. And we really just like to be together. So, and he was, and he was also my hero because when the job was very, very tough, he was in my corner and he would just say, it's okay, babe, you can do it. You're brave. You're strong. And I'm proud of you. And, um, And that, and so I think that's another thing in your personal life is to have to identify who's there for you. And even, you don't even have to talk to them about the stupid job, just, you know, just be able to talk to them about anything, you know, or just go out and take a walk together or whatever it is. But you need to have people who are your, like they're your, they're your, the cloak that you pull around yourself to soothe yourself and protect yourself um, in the off hours. And then when it's time to go back to work, you put on the armor and head back in.
0: I like that. That's a nice analogy, too. It's like, yes, the, the armor is back on now. So here we go. Um, good stuff. You, get, you know, one of the things that uh, you talk about is you talk about what you call the vision thing. So, what is the vision thing?
1: <laughs> well, I use the word the vision thing because people were talking about it so much they were constantly talking about the vision. You have to have your vision and when when I was hired uh, to be a principal, one of the assistant soups she she said to me, "You know now, when you get into your job, you're going to i'm, I'm I, I know I'm making fun of the woman and I don't care." Uh, <laughs> she said. When you get into the job you're going to, you're going to want to do a lot of visioning and i was like the hell is that visioning that's not even grammatical <laughs> and, and she was very serious about it and of course i sat there again with a very straight face because she was assistant superintendent but i walked away and i thought you know what this school spent an entire year trying to agree on who could be a principal. I think they've had their fill of visioning. And now that the vision has showed up, I think I just better get on with the job. (laughs) Nice. So my idea of visioning was what did I envision for the school? What's my vision? And how could I distill it down to something that was recognizable to me and other people so that we would know if we were getting closer and closer and closer to what we were talking about. And for me, I had um, my vision, which was I didn't always broadcast this particular saying, but I lived by it. My bumper sticker was teaching hasn't happened until kids learn. And it sounds maybe simple at first, but it wasn't. What I found in my experience was that a great deal of the teaching that was going on was actually very performative. It was people standing up and talking in a classroom full of children, but there was not necessarily any learning going on, not from the ver- not for the very very bright students, not for the children who had more and different learning needs that there was performance teaching and if i walked into the room which i did frequently the performance even was bumped up even more yeah and it, so it was what looked like teaching but it was really a teacher talking And so I wanted, what I was curious about is, could I find classrooms where there was interaction going on? Was there was inquiry going on where kids actually had their hands on the steering wheel of this thing called learning, and they were trying to figure out how to drive? Were they using their brains? Were they inquisitive? Were they being challenged to think, not just to sit still and listen? And so that was my vision but the way to sell the vision of course is not to say that because that would have sounded rude i'm sure and some teachers would have immediately, immediately taken offense but the way i structured this whole process of of pursuing my vision was to say let's talk about learning let's talk about learning everywhere i went i said let's talk about learning and so i Um, first of all, I had to, if I was going to find out if kids were really learning, I had to get out of my office. All right. So that was number one. The number one thing is I realized I cannot stay in that office because otherwise I have no idea what's going on out there. Those classrooms are my responsibility and sitting here with a cup of cold coffee is not. So I was mostly gone from my office. And I was out in in the community, uh, out in the school, out in the school. And so, what I did is I started talking. As I said, I just started saying, "Let's let's talk about learning. Let's talk about learning." And um, and of course, what I'd seen. This is another thing that I'd seen. There were a lot, a lot of bright kids in the school, and so many classrooms. The performative teaching was accompanied by a child or a couple of kids called the designated answers. And when the teacher would ask a question, the designated answer would have his hand up and he or she would answer the question and the teacher would be so pleased. And the teacher would ask another question, another hand goes up. And two or three kids were playing like intellectual ping pong with the teacher. Well, it wasn't really intellectual, but it was like ping pong with the teacher. And the rest of the kids were like having a rich fantasy life. They didn't have to do anything. They just sat there, and as long as they kept out of the line of fire, they were fine. So none of this, none of this, um, was okay with me. So then I started um, trying to figure out. So how do I get people to buy into this idea of learning, um, looking at learning? And that's really. So that's that's what I had to do. I had to transfer the vision from my head into that, into the conversation, into the conversation. So what I did, first of all, I just started visiting classrooms. I was curious. I wanted to see what was going on. This had not happened in this school. People were not used to administrators coming into classrooms. And some people actually locked their doors. Um, So, but I had a key, so I could go in. Uh, Many people kept their doors closed all, all day long. Again, I have a key. I can get in. And... There were two reactions, but this was what was so fabulous about it. First of all, I did it because I missed kids. Being in in the principal's office and then all the kids are out there, I miss the kids. I miss the learning stuff. So some teachers loved it. They had been teaching for so long, being so good, being so excellent, and nobody was telling them. Nobody was giving them feedback. Nobody was saying, damn, you're fabulous. And they, when somebody, I came into their rooms, watched them teach. And then whenever I left, I took a little, a post-it pad with me and a pencil or a pen. Every time I was in the classroom, I left a little post-it on the desk of the teacher saying, and I'd say one good thing about one thing I saw and I would leave it. They were thrilled. And some of them would call me up after a while when they got used to me visiting and they knew what it was like. They would call my office, and if I was there, they'd say, you've got to come down. You've got to come down and see what's going on. We're doing blah, blah. And I would, of course, rush down and see this fabulous, fabulous teaching and learning. Kids were learning. Okay, there was another contingent was not so thrilled with the visits, and so they would get on the phone because all the classrooms had phones that connected up to the other rooms. They would call their friends and say, she's she's on the she's on <laughs> the loose. Nice. Look out. She's, she's coming your way. And so then they would, you know, Uh, spiff out their act, their performance, a little bit while I came in. But I kept coming back and coming back and coming back, and that was the thing. I think at first they thought it was novel, and I would stop, and I didn't. And everywhere I went, I collected what I called traveler's tales, which was little tiny anecdotes about kids learning. Kids learning, that was the idea. And so then when I would go to PTA meetings, I would tell traveler's tales to the parents, because they don't know what goes on in classrooms. They, they want to know, they're curious, but they don't know. So I would tell them, oh, I saw this, I saw this science, this kid said this, and I would make it very detailed. And they loved it. When I went to faculty meetings, I would say, oh my God, I have to tell you what I saw in Mrs. So-and-so's class and his class and her class, and i tell them all about it. I would keep uh, holding up for them images of what it looks like when real learning is going on. And so that was one of the things I did. I changed our faculty meetings you know, stupid faculty meetings, you know, you stand up, you have this horrible agenda, it's boring stuff. Everybody knows what it's, they can, they can read the agenda for God's sake. You don't need to stand and say it. I said, we're not doing any bits and pieces. Faculty meetings are for professional development. I will send you a memo with nuts and bolts. Faculty meetings are reserved for professional development. And so they were always learning. We always either had people coming in to teach them like about autism, about Um, the scientific process about whatever, or they were tackling curriculum issues that were endemic in the school problems. And they were reconstructing curriculum um, by collaborating. And then they had to collaborate and they had to talk about what they were teaching. And so suddenly the school was opening to this idea that, oh my God, we're colleagues. And uh, this was this abundance thing again. We're not enemies, we're colleagues. So that was fabulous. And then we had a thing called inquiry, and inquiry was we were able to take some of our money, the staff development money that people didn't want to use to go to conferences, and we were able to get a, <clears throat> a outside uh, mediator type person, but not a mediator in a bad sense. It was a person who, a problem, it was really a provocateur, somebody who would come in and help us think. And we were able to sub teachers out during the day and so five or six of them could meet with the provocateur and talk about learning and talk about student and bring student work and begin to examine student work and so we had these inquiry sessions going on and then the what i thought was the most brilliant evening not because i'm brilliant but because the provocateur said let's do this and it was hysterical. The parents wanted to have inquiry sessions so we had an inquiry group for parents at night and they would come and we'd talk about learning, talk about learning. So one of the meetings with the parents, we gave them a sample fourth grade standardized test to take and they took the test and then they spent the rest of the evening arguing over which was the right answer why this doesn't make sense, why this makes sense, no, it's this, no, it's this. And by the time they had ripped that standardized test to shreds, then we said, well, okay, well that was that was exhilarating. Let's now let's talk about learning. And so they had, many of them had this idea that the standardized tests were like God. That was what you needed. And never mind anything else. You've got to get those scores. And after they took the test, they're like, "This is a terrible test." <laughs> and we said, "Well, that's uh, that's some insight there." One of the great, great things too—we had so many scientists in our community, and so, but our science curriculum was almost non-existent. People, because we were really close to the ocean, our school was 24 blocks from the ocean. People taught dolphins. Everybody taught dolphins. Kids could speak dolphin fluently, right? If you were in kindergarten, you talked about dolphins. Second grade, first grade, everybody was teaching dolphins. Nobody was teaching anything else. And they certainly weren't teaching the scientific method. So, for staff development, I invited the scientists in the community to come in and talk about their work, not teach us, to talk about their work. You had people who had hearing issues, people who did things with eyes. There was a man who was creating helmets helmets to wear at night that cooled down the brain because it helped the brain revitalize sooner. Anyway, so then what happened is the teacher said, oh my God, this is what science is like. This is what science looks like, not that crap in the book. And so then they started reconstructing their science curriculum. So that's what I did. That's how I got buy-in to the idea of learning. I just kept making learning interesting and fun and interesting and fun. And one of the best, best things a teacher said to me, uh, when I was leaving, um, she said to me, you made me a better teacher and she'd been on the job for over 20 years. She said, you made me a better teacher. And I said, I said to her, you made me feel useful. Nice. So it was really quite lovely.
0: That is, that's awesome. That is. so That's,
1: that's cool. the vision thing.
0: Awesome. I love it. Thanks for explaining that. And, uh, And, and, you know, one of the things I got to make sure that I I ask you is, so tell me one thing that a principal should do to make sure they're living the
1: vision. You've got to be in classrooms. I'm sorry. There's no other way. If you, if you think about, all right, just think about a, a manufacturing plant, whatever you're manufacturing, some kind of widget. If you're the manufacturing manager and you never go down on the floor You never talk to the people. You never see if the widgets are coming out the right end. You never see if they work. How are you managing? How are you the manager? And schools are not widgets. They're human beings. They are life. You have to be in classrooms. And yes, the sacrifice you make is that when you get back to your office at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, the pile of work, the inbox never sleeps. The inbox never sleeps. And so now you... It's after work and you have a pile, 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 pile of work and you have to do it. Yes, you have to catch up. And the more you dialogue with your teachers, the more they will want to come after school and talk to you. So you'll end up having teacher conferences and finally they'll go home. And then finally you get to the inbox. But but you know what's going on in your school and you know what's not going on. and And that's, to me it's the only way you can be ethically accountable to your students and your community is to spend time where the rubber meets the road.
0: That is so awesome. So, so cool. I, you're, I mean, Laura, this has been awesome talking with you and we're, we're coming to a close. I got a couple of things that I want to ask you last, sure. but, you know, gardening in the minefield is just so powerful and you know, it, it just hits at what the principals deal with all the time and gives them suggestions and ideas about how to get through it. It's so cool. You know, one of the things I want to get you to do is before we close, could you let everyone know where they could connect and learn more?
1: Oh, sure. Well, I have a website. It's www.laurelschmidt.com. So easy. Um, and when you get there, you'll see a lot of stuff about my novel, but there's another page that is all of my other books and there's stuff about me and there's my email address and I get emails from people all the time about about education. So feel free. I am your colleague.
0: Awesome. And I will have that in the show notes. And uh, just to remind everybody, those of you who are listening on mobile, you just go in there, scroll down just a little bit and you'll see the apps right there and you can just click on it and go straight to our website from, from, uh, from your mobile phone. So that's good stuff. So uh, I got two last questions for you. And the first one goes like this, because I just, I, I couldn't not ask you this, because you do this little section on communication in your book. And I, so I had to make sure that I, I snuck this in there. So could you share some thoughts about voicemail and email in terms of the leader?
1: Yes, I would say the one word, treacherous, absolutely treacherous. And, um, but you cannot ignore it. So this is, there's, that's the trick of it. All right. Uh, You know, I don't need to tell people how wrong things can go when you leave a voicemail for someone and the next thing you know, a snippet of it has been boosted up onto social media. Same thing with an email. An email can be edited. It can be forwarded. It can be quoted. These are the places where... Probably you are paying the least attention because you're just trying to get through that list of phone calls and emails. And yet it's where you must spend the most attention. And so, again, it's a warning. It's a warning. You cannot go uh, lightly into either of those activities. So, one thing to do is cut down, cut down on the volume of both of those things by having your administrative assistant listen to your voicemail I had a chart and they would write down who called what's their phone number what do they want to know what do they want to know and when I go back to my office I would take that chart and I would highlight all the ones that my secretary my assistant could call back herself and I would write a little note and said here's the answer here's the answer here's the answer because when you're a principal you're the executive And we don't think of ourselves as executives, but you're the executive. You're like the CEO. CEOs don't return all their phone calls, especially not simple phone calls. So I would write a note, then I would give it back to the, and my administrative assistant would make those calls. And the people would get a quick return phone call, and they were happy. Email. If people are asking you anything in an email that is of any content, you might want to say to them, would love to talk to you more about this, please call. Because then it's somewhat off the record. But as we know from the scandal that is brewing in Los Angeles right now with our city council, even when you're on the phone, you don't know that it's not being recorded. So you are living in a world of incredible communication sharing, whether or not you assent to it. And you have to keep that in mind at all times, minimize your exposure, be thoughtful when you do respond, and remember that thing about the New York Times. If you don't want your, if you're not happy with your writing or your quote showing up on the New York Times, don't send it. Don't write it. All right. Because you can spend weeks of precious time trying to undo one mistake that you made in writing. And then there goes all the time that you should be spending with your kid.
0: It's so wild. I mean, that's just just incredible advice and powerful, And but you're so right. I mean, just one one mistake you sent that last email too late at night or you know yes. or uh, you've accidentally hit the all caps button and didn't realize it or uh, you know there's any number of things <laughs> that could happen there and and you know you meant well but it sure didn't turn out well it's like <laughs> nice <laughs>
1: exactly so, great exactly
0: great stuff i you know last question for you laurel and it goes like this if you had a chance to speak with an audience of brand new principals, what is something that you would want them to think about as they left your talk
1: I would want to think about the immense responsibility of guiding youngsters through their childhood, which is so precious and they are so vulnerable, but they are also so primed for excellent learning. You're responsible to see that that happens as much as possible. And it will take courage courage. They need to. One of the things that they really, really need to be so aware of is when the job feels scary, it doesn't mean you're doing it badly. It probably means you're doing it very well. And it's scary because it takes courage to stand up to all of the forces aligned against you and to do what's right for kids. But that's how you know that you're really a principal and you're really a leader is that you do what's right for kids.
0: That is so awesome. I love it. Uh, Laurel, thank you so much for talking with me. Uh, Gardening in the Minefield, a survival guide for school administrators, is an awesome read. It's filled with amazing thoughts, suggestions, and tools for helping the school principal overcome the many obstacles and frustrations of being a school leader. Every school administrator should take time to read it. I'm wishing the best in all you do.
1: Thank you so much. It was delightful.
0: Hey, you have been listening to
1: Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12,
0: a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcast by educators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and host. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching, Learning, Leading, K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmuleto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.